0: Hi, this is John Biner. You're listening to TV Confidential. Oh, let's hear it. Come on. Come on out
1: here. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talk show about television. Chuck Carter will join us in our second hour as we welcome Allison Mills Newman. Allison Mills Newman, actress, writer, producer, director, singer, songwriter, and composer. Allison made her network television debut In an episode of Mr. Novak that originally aired in 1965, that opened the door for many other roles in movies and television, including a recurring role opposite Diane Carroll in the groundbreaking NBC series Julia, and later as a regular cast member of The Leslie Uggams Show on CBS. Allison, as you'll hear for yourself, is an independent spirit who has always had a desire to create and perform work with substance and meaning, including a series of faith based films about a charismatic woman who helps young people and especially young African American women make better choices in their lives. We'll talk about Allison's career as an actress, songwriter, singer, and filmmaker when she joins us along with Chuck Carter. In our second hour, we'll be able to stay tuned for that. Our second hour will also include part two of a conversation that began last week with Jeff Littlefield. Jeff Littlefield, author of a new biography about iconic composer Nelson Riddle. We'll talk about Riddle's collaboration with Linda Ronstadt, which in many respects proved to be the coda of Riddle's career in music. We'll also talk about his work with Ella Fitzgerald and more when we play part two of our conversation with Jeff Littlefield in our second hour. Please stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us for this week in TV history. Tony's segment is always brought to us by our friends at Story Salon, Southern California's longest-running, regularly-performing live storytelling ensemble. StorySalon.com, Facebook.com forward slash... Story Salon, youtube.com forward slash Story Salon. Ordinarily, we do not have guests for this week in TV history, but when the subject is Norman Lloyd, a man who lived to be age 106 and whose career in front of and behind the camera involved collaborations with Charlie Chaplin, Alfred Hitchcock, and Orson Welles, we have asked our friend Mark DeWidziak to sit in with us. Mark DeWidziak, of course, was the television critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. For more than three decades, he has written or edited more than 20 books on film, television, and American popular culture, including Everything I Needed to Know, I Learned, in The Twilight Zone, The Shawshank Redemption Revealed, and one of the very, very best books on television ever written, The Columbo File. Mark Dwidziak interviewed Norman Lloyd on two occasions, one of which was for the Colombo file. And as a matter of fact, Mark, I had forgotten this until I looked this up earlier this morning. Norman Lloyd's connection to Colombo came at an interesting and perhaps even pivotal time in the early history of Colombo, wasn't it? Yes, it did.
0: (laughs) You might say that. The old uh, toast, which is actually a curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, Norman Lloyd got the interesting times. During that first season of Columbo.
1: Yeah, it was at the height of the acrimonious period between Falk and Levinson and Link.
0: Well, actually, the acrimonious period between Falk and Universal. Uh, Peter was at war with the studio. Levinson and Link were caught in the crossfire. You know, here they were, they were essentially young writers who had been convinced by Richard Irving, uh, who was then in charge of the the television division at Universal, to be the producers on the first season of Columbo. They hadn't produced before. They uh, they were really thrown into the deep end of the pool. Dick Irving had directed the first two movies, Prescription, Murder, and Ransom for a Dead Man, and he convinced them that they should be the producers for, for that first season and they were thinking about being producers anyway but there was a great way as writers to protect your own property it's a, it's a common model today for writers to be also producers uh, it's hyphen yeah. and the showrunners as well you know we see that it's common with people like David Chase and Vince Gilligan but back then it wasn't quite so common and uh, they took it on and it was a very, very difficult year, to say the least. They had a difficult star. They hadn't produced before, and they were under a time limit because they were going to lose Peter Falk in the fall to Broadway. He was going to go to Broadway to star in Neil Simon's The Prisoner of Second Avenue with Lee Grant, of all people, who he had just done, the second Columbus. <laughs> yes, right. Ransom for a dead man. Yeah. So Peter had asked the studio if he could direct a... Episode. Peter wanted to direct. I mean, Peter really wanted to direct. And the studio, and you know how Hollywood executives are type. Are they? they, Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, sure. Yeah, you can direct an episode. And Peter thought they meant it. (laughs) So, you know... then it was like well which episode am I going to direct there's only there was originally going to be uh, six episodes in that first there were seven uh, eventually because they added a seventh episode so you know Peter was like well which one am I going to get and the studio was clearly didn't care anymore whether he was going to direct they liked what they were seeing they thought they had a a prestige show on their hands but it hadn't aired yet Columbo nobody kind of knew whether Columbo would actually be a hit or not and uh Peter started to... This really started early. This started on Dead Weight, where Peter's uh, arguments with the studio. Uh, and it's built through that first season. Deadweight was one of the very few episodes where the guest stars did not get along with Peter because Peter was in a foul mood in Deadweight And Eddie Albert and Suzanne Plachette did not have fond memories of working on Deadweight. Well, that's because Peter was at the height of his of, of, he was getting sick <laughs> put that in quotes <laughs> he was staying home he was had his doctor sending notes and Levinson and Link were tearing their hair out they were trying to keep this thing on schedule uh, they were writing they were producing they were rewriting they were working with Stephen Botchko, the story editor the, they weren't seeing their families they were. it was just awful and here's their star Making things even worse, by he's difficult to begin with, but then he's also now uh, doing holdouts. This is to force the studio to let him direct. Now, now we come to Lady in Waiting, and Norman Lloyd gets the directing assignment on, on it. And Peter has decided now this is where he's going to make his stand on on Lady in Waiting, but instead of carrying his discontent onto the set, he decides he, this is just between him and the studio. So he goes, and they start shooting Lady in Waiting. He goes up to all of them, and very politely, he goes up to Susan Clark, he goes up <laughs> to Norman Lloyd, and he says, listen, I'm going to disappear for a while. It's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's only the studio. But they promised me I could direct... And they haven't come through yet, so I may disappear for So he told them up front that he was going to pull this, and uh, he did. He stayed home. There were legal threats. There were all this, this, this huffing and puffing, and this was kind of a brave stunt on Peter's part, in, in a sense because the show wasn't a hit yet. Yeah. And there was actually talk among the studio execs of who does he think he is. There was actual talk of recasting it or bringing somebody else in to play the part. One exec even floated the idea of having a different actor play Columbo every week. That, you know, it could be like Hamlet and they would have different (laughs) character people play the part. There was all of this. But, you know, Peter just was holding his cards. Like a good gambler, Peter was just holding his cards. So Norman Lloyd had to shoot whatever he could and what they did was this was norman lloyd great great floy they hired a short actor and they shot things from the back they hired a short guy and they shot things kind of in perspective the guy was even shorter than was a good deal shorter than peter they you know the matter of fact richard levinson referred to him as the midget that they hired <laughs> and they, they they shot this this person in perspective from the back And basically to get long scenes and get in scenes where they could so that when Peter came back, they could do things as fast as possible. Well, the the studio caved, you know, and Peter came back happy as could be. And it was a really, really happy set. And uh, Peter dropped by the production offices. And, you know, Levinson and Link were not in a very good mood with their star. The, The studio had even said to them, he wants to direct you know you guys are the producers and they said listen you told him that he could direct we don't think he should be able to direct we wouldn't let him do it but it's not our call it's, it's your call and you told him. so you know we'll find something for him to direct so uh, you know he drops by the production offices and he says to them you know uh, so how did things go well I was gone and Levinson said, "Well, not too good. We had trouble with uh, we had trouble with one of the people on the set." And Fox and said, "Really? Who?" Levinson said, "The midget. He wants to direct." <laughs> so, so yes. No, look, there was a lot of barbed humor in that. First, that was also the, the year that Levinson and Lick gave Peter, who has, you know, obviously a glass eye, had yeah. a glass eye, for Christmas they gave him half a bottle of murine. And things got so testy between them that, you know, somebody who visited the set asked Dick Levinson, who Dick was a very funny guy, and he had a very caustic sense of humor. And somebody asked Dick, which one is the glass eye? And Dick answered, the one with the gleam of intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, they well, have yes. so Norman Lloyd though, in some ways, the most challenging episode mm-hmm. to direct. Mm-hmm. But he didn't hold it against Peter. He understood. Yeah. He, you know, he was a veteran of having all those years he'd spent on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He knew, he knew how television worked, especially universal television, because that was a universal show.
1: And dealing with Orson Welles, he was used to dealing with big personalities.
0: That's right. That's right. So this this didn't faze Norman Lloyd in the least. You know, he just basically said, well, I'll get what I can when I can, and then we'll, we'll finish it up when Peter comes back. And he had, like most people, even the people who had the, the most difficult times with Peter, you couldn't help liking the guy there was just an innate likability and charm to Peter Falk and that was not lost on Susan Clark and Norman Lloyd and Leslie Nielsen and all of the people who worked on that episode so it wasn't for all of that it was not an unha- it wasn't like dead weight it was not an unhappy shoot at all and I said that Norman Lloyd got the most difficult one to direct that was ex- actually until
1: the one that Falk episode
0: yeah. Because with a certain amount of malice aforethought, Levinson and Link said, okay, let's let him direct. And they gave him the the biggest headache episode possible to direct.
1: That was the one with Forrest Tucker and Patrick O'Neill that was set on a construction site.
0: It was actually said that the Century City construction, that's when Century City was being built, when they were tearing up what used to be the back lot at 20th Century Fox to build Century City. And so there was this huge excavation pit, and it was a blueprint for murder, and with all that noise and all that construction crew and all that dust, on top of everything else, Peter had a cold. Uh, during that period when he was directing. So, Levinson and Link took a certain amount of glee in driving down to Century City and looking down on their star, down in that pit, trying to catch a scene here and there in the middle of all that noise and dust. And every once in a while, Peter would stop and shake his fist up at them. (laughs) Because
1: he knew what they'd done. Mm -hmm.
0: He knew what they had done. And for all that, Peter did a pretty good job directing that episode. He did. Yep.
1: And if I remember correctly, Norman Lloyd visited the set to that's show right. his support.
0: That's right. To, uh, advice, uh, guidance, and uh, to, to give him some support. That's exactly right. That's kind of who Norman Lloyd was. That's a, you know, that's a very good story of who Norman Lloyd was. He's, uh, for all the, the uh, gigantic egos that he worked with, he had an extraordinarily healthy ego. Yeah, Norman Lloyd was never one to say, "I worked with Hitchcock." I worked with Wells. You had to ask him, and then you know he would tell you these wonderful stories about working with these giants, and he'd tell you these most. He was a very witty, erudite, warm guy, and he would tell you all of these things. But he wasn't one of these guys who you know was, "Oh, I worked with Hitch." You know, there wasn't any of that. To Norman Lloyd you know he was a he is very old school very old school in the sense of, uh, of being you know kind of, he, he wasn't one of these bigger than Hollywood personalities that uh, had to, to be the, the center of attention and had to have the spotlight um, but once you asked once you asked him he would certainly warm to the subject he was a, he was a, a witty conversationalist uh, a great you know storyteller And he obviously had stories to tell.
1: Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Mark Dwidziak is with us to help pay tribute to legendary actor, producer, and director Norman Lloyd. Norman Lloyd, a man whose career in film, television, radio, and the stage pretty much spanned the entire history of 20th century entertainment. Norman Lloyd passed away this past Tuesday, May 11th, at the age of 106. Mark Dwidziak interviewed... Norman Lloyd, on two occasions while he was television critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Tony? Actually,
2: since you brought that up, I got to meet him, you know, it was like 30 years ago because there was a, a show at Universal in the park that was centered around the Statue of Liberty scene in Saboteur, and he came to do a press event recreating that that moment, and he was so soft-spoken and, I mean, just commanded everybody's attention. Yeah, he did refer to Hitch as Hitch. Uh, he was the only person there who, who, who referred to it. But it was just amazing talking because he said, yeah, we shot that scene in December of 1940, and I'm going, so like a year before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and he goes, yeah. And, you know, he kept referring to Liberty Island as Bedloe Island. Yeah. And... But we were talking about you know the stuff that he did on the Lo- and uh, yeah it was just kind of like wow this is a history but you know at the time i knew him best from st elsewhere as dr auslander for me that was my first introduction to norman lloyd i mean i've been watching him all of my life but it was st elsewhere favorite show of mine and you just fell in love with the character he was one of my favorite characters throughout the whole show and uh, honestly I was happy to see him in the finale of the show, and
0: don't get me started on the finale of the show. Yeah, there there is no unanimity of opinion on that finale. I have have a friend. uh, uh, I I, I think Ed, you know David being coolie. Yes,
1: yes, I do. Yes,
0: I do. St. Elsewhere is one of David's all-time favorite shows, and to him, St. Elsewhere could do no wrong. And we've been arguing about the finale since it aired because you know, uh, because I I disagree with it but I think it could do wrong. You know. But but every series, no matter how much you love it, can do wrong. If you're doing, you know, twenty two episodes or up a year, you're going to make missteps. Uh, mm-hmm. there are going to be continuity problems, there are going to be bad nobody has twenty two great stories a year. You know. I mean, no, in, in, in two years you've done more stories than Shakespeare. It just doesn't work. You know, so you know, acknowledging you know, as as the the old Chinese proverb goes, any masterpiece is flawed, and that a flaw is essential to a masterpiece. And you know, so there that is true of everything, and it's certainly true of St. elsewhere. But we've been arguing about that finale. Yeah, I do uh, not And like and, it. and it's yeah. it's going
2: to deserve uh, arguments for you know as well, long like, as that shows to yeah. come. <laughs> but, the, but but the other thing <laughs> that kind of got because you would see his character, Doctor Alflander, is she, he, if he was disappointed, he would rarely raise his voice, I think the only time that character raised his voice is that, you know, he needed to be heard over other voices or other noise. But he was this, you know, there'd be a raise of an eyebrow and just a slightly different tone. When he was with us, when we were working with this replica of the Statue of Liberty torch, we had the script notes for this show. And it was something like, uh, you know, Robert Cummings as the hero and Norman Lloyd as the evil Nazi Agent, and he just looks at it and ra- lowers his head, raises his eyebrows. He said, Evil Nazi agent, isn't that redundant? Is <laughs> it Nazi agent just sufficient? Then, but it was the tone, you know, it's like, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> it's just over the way that it was scripted. And I think ever since then, nobody ever said the evil Nazi agent, well, you know. And I think that the,
0: that's a very good observation, sound observation about. Uh, Norman Lloyd and the character he played on St. Elsewhere, mm. neither one of them, they rarely raised their voices because they didn't have to. They brought such absolute authority to the moment mm-hmm. that yeah. so you knew you were supposed to shut up and listen at that point. And that was true, of, true of Dr. Auslander, and it was true of Norman Lloyd.
1: Mark Dawidziak is with us to help pay tribute to legendary actor, producer, and director Norman Lloyd. We'll continue our conversation with Mark and Tony and Donna when we come back on TV
0: Confidential.